This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. And I hope you are having a happy holiday. What a year it has been as we look back. And I was putting together what I thought were the top themes of the year. And I was sort of had a top five. You know, when the coronavirus is such a huge story that I didn't think of it till number four. Like, that's how big of a story it is. It became like water in the aquarium, and I'm just swimming around, and oh yeah, we're swimming in water. So coronavirus was number one in the top five. So now, I'm just some guy. Yeah, I've been helping edit the website for a while. Now I'm helping mostly with the images and the podcast, a little bit the newspaper stuff, so sort of moved on from the website a little bit, social media, and and so on. And it's just one person's opinion. Feel free to mail me, apocabelli at northernminer.com. I put together my top five, top five themes of 2020 as we look back in the context of the mining industry. The number one, I would say, was the coronavirus. I think that's easy to identify just for its sheer disruption, for all the reasons that we already know. Now, specific to the mining industry, from that perspective, what I think maybe one of the interesting lessons was, was sort of like a business management values lesson. And I talked about it a lot while it was happening which was this idea of putting business above health. And it's still a debate. I mean, it's not like we've, it's not like there's a black or white answer to this question. For me, it's a little more black and white, but I mean, we can't, you know, destroy the economy in order to not get sick. So there are arguments for both sides and maybe there's kind of a ways of going ahead with minimizing risk and all that sort of thing. But you really saw that, though, in late February and early March. You know, for example, they kept going ahead with PDAC when it was clear there was a global pandemic that was showing up. They went ahead with it. They basically, for lack of a better term, got away with it. And we could be critical of them, but the Prime Minister of Canada showed up. So, you know... I'm not going to be too harsh on PDAC for going ahead. And next year, they're going to do a virtual PDAC. So they already decided that. Something like a month or six weeks ago, I got an email saying, oh, by the way, PDAC's virtual this year, so register now. So isn't that interesting? So, you know, and credit also to them for adjusting. But I think it really highlighted this idea of values, which is really key to if you're going to be an executive in business management, I would argue from the editorial angle here, but from my reading, uh, I think it really highlighted the importance of values. Because really, values are at the core of your personality and really your strength as a person. And sometimes values seem boring. If you've ever, you know, done the life coaching or the self-help type stuff, the great Brian Tracy, who was kind of my digital mentor of sorts, and really 
That is the nuclear reactor at the core of your personality is your values. Because you can't be a strong person, some people argue, and I agree with them, without kind of knowing your values and where you stand. And values, an example of this is, say, prioritizing people's health over money or business. Now, sometimes people's health relies on business being good and business working, right? There are studies that the more money you have, generally the healthier you are and the better off you are. So these are not black and white issues. Nevertheless, I think from the mining industry perspective, we really did see this divergence where some companies stopped earlier than others. These are very difficult decisions and nobody was really prepared for it, but it all comes back down to having those values. And then when you're kind of hit by surprise with something like a global pandemic, you kind of know how to act. You kind of know how to move forward. And I would argue that's the responsibility of management and executives and CEOs is understanding at the minimum that values are at the core. So that would be theme number one, would be coronavirus and how it was reacted to uh, at the time and since. And I think uh, everybody's found their equilibrium. As a society, we found our equilibrium. And just finally on this point, remember this virus in North America, I'm in Berlin, so already in late February, they're clearing grocery shelves in Milan. But in North America, it, things didn't really get real until the NBA canceled their season. And then the NHL, I think, followed the next day. It was like around March 7th, 8th, maybe March 12th. And then everything stopped. And then you saw the panic in the stock market for the next three weeks, a nonstop cascading waterfall downwards. So theme number one, I would say the pandemic. Theme number two, which could have been number one, was Rio Tinto and ESG. There had been a lot of talk of ESG before this year. Uh, you could say the conferences for the previous two years were becoming increasingly ESG-centric, but I think it really hit home with the Rio Tinto uh, blowing up the Juke and Gorge sites. And especially when it, like, as listeners of this podcast know, I suspected this was on purpose and that they knew ahead of time. And that, in fact, turned out to be the case. As far as I understand, it all came out later that they knew. And I believe the CEO resigned shortly before that really came out. Because then their whole pretext, their whole defense of, oh, it was this comedy of errors and it was everybody's fault, so it was nobody's fault. That all kind of fell through when it became clear that they actually knew what they were doing. So Rio Tinto and ESG number two. I could take a whole show. Maybe I should take a whole show on this, but we have David Elliott coming up. Uh, and number three, I would say, which is again, almost a number one, which is gold being disrupted by Bitcoin. And also, which is still unrecognized by 99% of people, the rise of DeFi in, with Ethereum. Okay, so... Long story short, the rise of crypto as a serious asset class. And it's so interesting because you see BlackRock, you see JP Morgan, 
you see all these investment firms, as the Bitcoiners would say, FOMOing in to crypto. And I have a theory on why they're doing that, because they kind of knew about the asset class before. I think a lot of these hedge funds and money managers are being forced into it because this is a retail revolution. Their customers are saying, you know, you get like maybe a 60-year-old guy or 40-year-old guy saying, hey, my 20-year-old son is able to buy Bitcoin, but I can't buy Bitcoin through you guys? Like, what are you guys? What am I paying you guys for? And I think that's why BlackRock made several statements, and now they're out getting a VP of blockchain, they've announced. I think that's why they're doing it. I think they're signaling to their customers, hey, we take this asset class seriously, and don't worry, you're going to be able to have exposure to it soon. Because especially the super rich people, also, they're paying attention to these things and they're going, hey, where's my exposure? My kid's getting rich and you guys have me on some 3% bond, municipal bond, like if you're lucky. Meanwhile, my kid's 7xing over two months or it's two weeks. Like crypto, now be careful out there if you venture into these markets, um, but crypto, the rise of crypto and you might say the legitimization of crypto by the establishment. And I don't think it's a come to Jesus moment for the asset managers. I think it was pressure from retail saying, where is my option to get crypto? And I don't have an option with your services. So they're, now everybody's rushing to provide these services. And it's not easy. If anybody, any of you out there who have signed up for crypto, I tell everyone, it's like a three weeks just to get your on-ramp. Because most credit card companies will not, especially in Canada, will not accept you buying crypto on an exchange, right? So, and they may have good reason for that. In 2017, a lot of people maxed out their credit cards on $17,000 Bitcoin and then it crashed and there was a problem. So I'm I'm not faulting them too much, but it's pretty tight and you got to figure out your on-ramp and there are special ways special credit cards that sort of provide for this, totally legal, all good. Uh, but you do, it's not as simple as you would think. It's not like, oh, I download a Coinbase app and I start buying. It's not that simple. Fourth, which again is one of the major themes, it's the beginning of what seems like a new bull market in commodities. Uh, we see copper, tin, tin has gone crazy. We've seen gold hit $2,000. I mean, that's kind of like old news now. Now everybody's kind of down on gold a little bit, which is probably an opportunity. Zinc, right? So these industrial metals particularly, and that's kind of related to the pandemic because it's kind of shifted the whole, like this idea of supply chains. And with that supply has sort of been highlighted because all of a sudden things we never dreamt of that we thought would never happen, such as running out of medical equipment, PPE, personal protective equipment, it's always just magically appeared and we just assumed it always would and it didn't. And I think that kind of highlighted on a subconscious level to leaders around the world that supply matters. And here you see it in the US and even in Canada, we have a story on first cobalt coming up. This idea of securing critical metals is becoming a bigger and bigger theme. And that wasn't really a theme since 2010 when you had the rare earths 
uh, issue when Japanese fishing boats were clashing with Chinese fishing boats and China threatened to stop the rare earth supplied to Japan. And that's when you got the rare earth bull market. So that would be number four. And number five is this rise of uranium, which we're seeing in the last few weeks. And what I like about uranium is I think it's proved itself to be a totally uncorrelated asset class. Like a lot of these hedge fund managers, when they're managing risk, part of the idea of investing in gold is to have an uncorrelated asset, something that when the market goes down, when bonds go down, or when everything goes down, that this thing might perform differently. It's on its own trajectory. And I think if there's any asset class other than crypto that has shown it can do that, even including crypto, it's uranium. Like uranium, it's easy to forget, but in March, I think it was, if I remember right, it was like the only asset that was going up. So that's super interesting. And now it's also going up. And so uranium, this kind of potential rise of uranium bull market. Now I say potential because so many people have called for a new uranium bull market that they've been, you know, shown to be wrong for the last 10 years. And as Rick Rule says, you know, you don't know when it's going to come, but you position yourself accordingly. I'm not in any mining stocks, as I mentioned before, but, you know, like that's the way to play these things is you do it when everybody hates it and you sell into strength. So those are my top five. Feel free to email me if you have other ideas and if I missed anything. So with that, we have a really interesting show. We have elder statesman David Elliott of Haywood Securities. And we have his fireside chat with Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro at the Global Mining Symposium just in November. And it's evergreen content. So I thought, hey, this is actually pretty nice Christmas content. As things wind down, there's not a ton of news stories out there. So there's not a ton of people to interview at this time of year. So let's put on David Elliott's story. And he's got a lot to say about... Uh, exploration, the state of mining exploration, and ultimately he's saying there's not that many great new projects out there as a result of a lack of financing of exploration companies. And this has been going on for quite a few years, maybe 10, as he mentioned. So a very interesting interview. And the later you go in the interview, the more global and macro it becomes. So it sort of reaches a crescendo. It's like a symphony, this interview. So that is coming up. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, We have this story. It came out right after last week's podcast. Canada rejects Shandong's bid to buy TMAC. And another story we've been following for months. Feels like six months at least. And the Canadian government has finally rejected Shandong Gold Mining's bid to acquire TMAC resources. And if we turn to the story, this is by Bruno Venditti of Mining.com. In a filing to the Shanghai Stock Exchange, Shandong Gold said it had received notice of a decision made by Canadian authorities on December 18th based on the Investment Canada Act. Shandong agreed to buy the company for about $150 million in May. 
really nothing when you consider, A, this is a fairly significant gold mine in the sense that the stock was trading about 10 times what it was trading uh, recently. Like in the last year, it fell like 90%, purely on, from what I understand, operational issues. But, you know, small aside here, it's like the crypto people saying, I can't believe they still take my fiat money for Bitcoin. It's sort of the same thing here. Like China is just more than happy. You need $150 million for your gold mine. Here you go. No problem. I can't believe they're doing this. So it looks like they're not. looks like Canada has put its foot down as saying we're not taking your $150 million of fiat for this gold mine. Shandong had agreed to buy TMAC for about $150 million in May, but in October, TMAC said it had received notice that the Canadian government had ordered a national security review. Some investors are worried about TMAC's ability to repay debt. The miner said on November 5th that it had about $100 million in cash on hand, short of the $169 million of debt due in June. Honestly, this just seems like a scare tactic. Like, I can understand their concern, but yeah, I, I think they should be able to get a loan. Like, it's only, in mining terms, how much is $70 million? I mean, we talk about the royalties, maybe just dial up Franco Nevada, and they'll probably happily give you $70 million that you need for a 2% NSR on your project. Ask the guys at Solgold about that. They'll probably fill you in on how to do that. Anyways, we continuing on, we have a quote from Laurentian Bank analyst Barry Allen, who told Reuters, quote, TMAC is likely to be forced into a messy refinancing, which could ultimately hurt shareholders. While we are disappointed with the outcome, we are very pleased that TMAC achieved significant operational improvements at Hope Bay. Jason Neal, TMAC's president and CEO, stated in a news release on December 21st, we will continue to build on these improvements while considering options to manage our balance sheet. Given our September 30th, 2020 unrestricted cash balance of $71 million and current positive cash flow being generated, so this thing is generating positive cash flow, we expect to have sufficient cash on hand to fund the 2021 C-Lift, but not to fully repay maturing debt recently extended to June 30th, 2021. At press time in Toronto, TMAC was trading at $1.16 per share. So Canada shuts the door on Shandong Gold buying TMAC. And you think about just finally, like, not only would Shandong Gold, which is, you know, a state-owned company, not only would they get the TMAC gold mine for a mere $150 million, they would also be able to set up shop in the Arctic. So, like, this is just like, they would have probably paid three times as much. Maybe they should have. Maybe it would have went through if they paid a little bit more. Now, first, Cobalt, interestingly, now, and this all fits into, remember last week's episode, for those who have listened, if you haven't, go listen to my interview with George Salamis, because he talks about, frankly, a very simple, and what I consider, frankly, a simple and revolutionary idea that he calls resource sovereignty, where basically Canada, as far as I understand George's thesis, Canada should really invest in its mining capabilities and really just turbocharge the Canadian mining sector in a way that's really helping it foster our mining industry and provide it, in a sense, have a paradigm shift, become a true and start selling these resources, processing them here, mining them here, Canadian companies, 
and start providing the world with resources. And I think it's easy for the free market people to be like, oh, this is, you know, almost smacks nationalizing the mining industry. It's nothing like that. It's really just doing stuff like we see here in this first cobalt story. First cobalt receives $10 million government boost to cobalt refinery. Stuff like this. I think George Salamis would say more stuff like this. And frankly, our last story, no, don't sell that gold mine in the Arctic to Shandong Gold for $150 million of fiat. So, you know, George may be very prescient here, and he may be identifying a theme that is kind of starting to be in the unconscious undercurrent. And maybe the government is onto this, because I think, again, in 10 years, if Canada just said, you know what, we're just going to develop the hell out of our mining industry and... You know, like, yeah, we're going to be free market, but we're also going to be kind of protective a little bit. And we're not just going to sell anything and everything. Uh, and let's just develop the hell out of this industry. Like, what are we waiting for? We have, we are one of the richest countries in the world. And we are treated as a lower than middle power when we have all the stuff. We have all the stuff that everybody wants. And we just sell it off to the first person that shows up. So there's a huge opportunity here. And we can stay true to our capitalist ideals, but it's just being a little bit smarter about it. Just a little bit. We don't need to nationalize things, but let's just boost our, let's encourage, let's put in subsidies to help encourage Canadian ownership of mines for example. Let's boost this first cobalt refinery in North America. This is great news. Okay, enough editorializing. We, we've got a long show here, so let's continue on. First Cobalt receives $10 million government boost to cobalt refinery. It's by Carl A. Williams, senior reporter from Northern Miner, also our science reporter. First Cobalt has secured $10 million in government funding that will allow it to accelerate the development of its cobalt refinery in Ontario, 600 kilometers from the U.S. border. Under the funding arrangement, the Canadian federal government has agreed to provide a $5 million interest-free loan to the company, while the government of Ontario will give a $5 million non-repayable grant. See? Like, just simple. Okay, like $5 million from the Ontario government, and the other one's just an interest-free loan, just enough to just get things going. Quote, I can't say enough about the level of support that has been provided to us, with 100% of the proceeds to be put into the expansion and commissioning of the refinery, Trent Mell, First Cobalt's president and CEO, said in an interview. First Cobalt is in discussions with a, quote, small group of lenders, end quote, to raise the additional $67 million needed for the $77 million project. So you see, it's not even like paying for everything. It's just giving that, here's the, you know, and they can go to their lenders and say, well, listen, the government of Canada and the government of Ontario believe in this project. Okay, so you can too. Okay, like we have good backing here. People want us to succeed. And sometimes that's enough to get those investors on board and maybe even get a lower interest rate than they would have had they not had that $10 million. Continuing on from Trent Mell, quote, for our lenders, the government funding sent two clear messages. First, it brings down the quantum of money required. And second... It sends a strong signal that the government believes in first cobalt and that there is now a de-risking of the asset in the eyes of the financial and capital markets. I did not read that before. 
That's exactly it. The government funding, Mel said, is part of a strategy by the federal and provincial governments to, quote, jump into the electric vehicle revolution and to shore up supply chains. Finally, in December, the federal government unveiled a $3 billion innovation fund to support clean technology development and a supply chain for electric vehicle batteries. While in October, both the federal and provincial governments agreed to support a $1.8 million overhaul of Ford Motors assembly plant in Oakville to make EVs. You know, I'm kind of quietly optimistic, like all the other political issues, frankly, are secondary to us getting our economy in order and really getting this, get the natural resources working to our advantage. Like, let's, let's work this thing. This is exactly what this country needs. So not, you know, more than symbolic moves being made by the government. So that's great to see. I think George Salamis would be happy to see that too. Moving on, World Economic Forum tests blockchain technology for tracking carbon emissions. And this is one of the great use cases for blockchain. There are a couple of coins out there. What is it? Uh, once the ticker is VET and it's a big supply chain and the other is called Origin Trail. And those are two cryptos and... I am not invested in them, and this is not investment advice, but just to keep you knowing what's going on out there, uh, yeah, that's one of the great use cases of blockchain is being able to track supply chains. They talked about even the vaccines. You could do it where everything's transparent. You know where it comes from. There's a, it's a distributed ledger. So there's, in other words, it's transparent. So you can see nobody, it's an immutable ledger that you can see what's going on, where it came from. And so that is incredibly valuable. Let's take a close look at this. Also by Carl A. Williams, the World Economic Forum has completed the initial stage of a blockchain platform for tracking embedded greenhouse gas emissions across the mining industry's value chain. The WEF's Mining and Metals Blockchain Initiative released a proof of concept called the Carbon Tracing Platform to help mining companies trace emissions from mine to final product. The WEF announced in a December 15th press release. We have a quote from Jorgen Sandstrom, WEF's head of mining and metals, quote, this limits the organization's control and ability to improve the footprint. He explained in an email to the Northern Miner, quote, our vision is to enable verifiable visibility of the embedded emissions from the mine to the market. And the COT is a big step forward in delivering this vision. That's COT is a carbon tracing platform. So very cool stuff there. You can read that full article on the northernminer.com. I'm going to move on. I'm just going to touch on these other two stories. We have a big Stan Sudol, an off and on contributor to the Northern Miner, and he has a huge write-up on Stephen G. Roman, who is the Global Atomic founder, chairman, and CEO. And I think that stock has been doing really well lately. It's part of this uranium bull market that sort of came out of nowhere. Let's see if it sticks. And he has a full profile, and his dad was involved in Denison Mines. So he, Stephen G. Roman has been involved in the uranium industry his entire life, from what I can tell. So you can read that. It's a nice little holiday story by Stan Sudol. And finally, we have a story by Trish Saywell. Demand for energy metals will be massive, Glencore CEO says. And so we're back to this commodities bull market at Glencore's Investor Day in early December. CEO Ivan Glasenberg kicked off his presentation by talking about how the commodities giant is, quote, steering a Paris Agreement alignment strategy 
while meeting the growing everyday needs for affordable and reliable energy infrastructure and transportation of the future, the longtime mining executive declared Glencore is determined to meet its net zero CO2 emissions targets by 2050, and in the medium term is targeting a 40% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2035, in part by reducing thermal coal production. The company, he said, is, quote, clearly ambitious and can achieve these targets on both scope one, two, and three CO2 emissions. Scope three. I knew you were going to keep hearing about scope three emissions, which are the emissions created by the person using the product, as far as I understand. And finally, another quote from Glasenberg, our model allows us to adapt to this because we have the right commodities leading to this transition of energy, which is taking place in the world. We've got copper, we've got cobalt, we've got zinc, and we have nickel. Yeah, they, they do have everything. We also have great assets to date in these commodities, and you will see we have long life assets and are at the lowest quartile cost curve in most of the commodities we produce today. Still, Glasenberg warned that with population growth and the move towards a low-carbon future with the electrification of energy supply, the world will require enormous amounts of energy metals and said that the demand for copper, nickel, cobalt, and zinc will grow. Quote, you can see demand growth for these metals is massive over the next 30 years and the mining industry is going to have to step up to the plate to produce these extra metals. And that's going to be very difficult to achieve. You know, I was listening to, I think it's Jeffrey Curry at Goldman Sachs. He had a great interview. And he was saying how, I think how he was expecting this commodities bull market to be greater than the last one. And the last one was pretty great as far as price appreciation. So that's almost scary. So you can read the full story on northernminer.com. Demand for energy metals will be massive, Glencore CEO says. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on December 29th, gold is trading at $1,876.62. That is $2 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $26.12. That is $0.14 cents higher than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $1,014.61. That's a dollar lower than last week's quote. Palladium is trading at $2,351.13. And that is $32 higher than last week's quote. And turning to industrial metals, copper is trading lower at $3.53. That is $0.08 cents lower than last week. And aluminum is trading at $0.92 cents per pound. That is a penny lower Lead is also trading lower at 89 cents per pound. That is four cents lower. Nickel is also trading lower at $7.69. That is 28 cents lower than last week's quote. And tin is trading a penny higher at $9.20. And cobalt is unchanged at $14.52. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.28 per pound. Moral of the story, commodities are on vacation. Unlike crypto, which has gone bananas, commodities are chilling. So not much going on, slightly lower 
but really nothing to write home about. And so prices stay elevated and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have David Elliott and he is vice president and director of Haywood Securities. And he is in conversation with Northern Miner Group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, who gives a quite lengthy introduction about David Elliott's biography. And so I'm going to leave it to him to explain more, but it's a really interesting interview and it gets more macro as the interview continues. I hope you enjoy it. Like I was saying in the introduction, he really is an elder statesman of the Canadian mining community who has just introduced the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's seen a lot and he's got a lot to say. And so hope you enjoy the interview and we'll see you on the other side. Very excited to have our next guest for our featured fireside chat. We have Mr. David Elliott, who is Vice President and Director of Haywood Securities. He's also one of the principals and founders of Haywood Securities. And it is for that achievement and all of the incredible support that he has given to so many junior companies, because his support goes beyond just raising, helping to raise capital junior mining companies that David Elliott has been a part of. And it's for that track record and his track record dealing in such an honorable way throughout the entire industry and having such high ethics in his business that he is being inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Now, David has been in the mining sector for over 35 years. And along with his partner, Andrew Williams, he continues to generate investment opportunities for their retail and institutional clients. David began his career in 1968 with Doherty Roadhouse and McQuaig brothers in Montreal. And then he transferred to Vancouver in 1970. He also worked at West Coast Securities and Walwyn Stodgill, Cochrane Murray, until he joined forces with John Tonietti, David Shepard, and Rob Blanchard to purchase Haywood Securities. And that was in 1986. And check this out, back then in 1986, Haywood had just 15 employees. Now it has 313 and about $10 billion under management. Just a very storied career. You know, I reached out to David beforehand to see if he'd be interested in doing this. And he got back to me a couple of days later, only because he was fly fishing and then way up north in BC, an avid fly fisherman and one who also supports conservancy causes throughout BC. Have you, did you reel in some big ones, David? How's the fly fishing been so far for you this fall? It was it was pretty good. Uh, it was a low return year uh, for steelhead up in that Skeena River system. We were fortunate to be able to to hook some fish, and uh, my daughter came up for the first time her her first steelhead trip, and and she uh, landed two really nice steelhead. So that uh, uh, so she's going to be hooked for life now. Yeah, she is. Yeah, and she's already <laughs> after me about next year that uh, <laughs> I have a spot for her. <laughs> and my son was up with me as well, and he comes up every year, so. Uh, he's quite a he's quite an avid fisherman as well. And uh, anyway, how big a, how big is the family, David? Is it one daughter, one son? No, I've got two daughters. Um, Jessica's my oldest daughter. She um, she has her own accounting firm with a partner. And then my son, my middle child is Patrick, and he uh, he did his undergrad in geology and uh, geophysics, and uh, he spent seven or eight years um, in the field doing copper exploration. And then he went and did his masters. 
in Australia and, uh, and an MBA at the same time. And uh, so he's uh, 40 just this year. My, my younger daughter, Stephanie, uh, she works for Tech. She works for uh, Don Lindsay at Tech. And uh, she's been there 10 years now, I think. And uh, she's doing very well. And we have a we're very fortunate. We've got three lovely children and they're very respectful. They work hard and uh, we have a very, very close family. This is pretty cool. That is that. As the saying goes, when you have a healthy family, you have everything. That is really what it is all about. David, what was their reaction? What was your kid's reaction when they found out that dad was going into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame? Yeah, they were they were pretty excited, and um, I uh, I was the last to find out, I guess, and <laughs> my nomination was going forward. And I anyway, my children, uh, yeah, they were very excited and very proud. They see me. They saw me work so hard over the years, and I think. Uh, they know my dedication and my respect for other people. And anyway, they, uh, yeah, they were, they were really pleased. How does it feel? I mean, as I can only imagine, I, I have no idea how that feels to, to be inducted into a hall of fame. Does it feel like, uh, is it like a culmination of a long career or does it feel like entering, you know, a group of peers? I don't know. What, what are the emotions associated with that when you find out? Yeah, I was, when I first heard about it, I, that my name was being put forward, it was, it was fairly emotional because it's over my whole career. I, I never thought of that kind of recognition. I was always working with partnered with other geoscientists in a team environment and trying to build something, you know, uh, as a team and personal recognition wasn't something that I, I uh, ever thought about really, to be honest with you. And uh, I always kept a, you know, low key in the industry. And when I was found out that my name was being put forward, I, I mean, it was very humbling, really. I, I uh, never, never thought about, uh, you know, getting that kind of recognition. Yeah. Well, it is, and it is fascinating because you, you have, you've never gone really to the limelight. It's been just on reputation, just person to person relationship that you build over the years and people being so moved by that and being so enthralled with the support that you've given over that period of time. And I want to spend some time diving into that, uh, into that career and see what lessons we can glean uh, from it. But I, I, I would just ask you, it is a little bit, it's not always the, the ordinary that someone would have as much success or be behind so many success stories that we know. We're going to touch upon those later in our conversations. A lot of mining companies that our viewers are, are very well familiar with David was in there at ground zero and you might not know about them if he wasn't involved. And yet you have avoided the limelight. Has that been by design? Is that something you intentionally kind of stay away from? Or why is that, you, that maybe the average investor um, doesn't know you as well as they might otherwise? You know, my whole career, I, I, I got to develop a passion for geology and the search for, search for minerals at a very young age. And uh, initially that was uh, Afton Mines. It was kind of the first investment I ever made, and I got to know Chester Miller and Martin Gibson. Chester yeah. Miller, another Hall of Famer. Yeah, and uh, you know, I just developed a relationship with them over the years, and that really got, developed a passion for me. And I, I, I saw those two gentlemen, how low key they were. They were, you know, very, very calm. They were uh, focused totally on trying to build value for their investors, and uh, that really sunk in with me and I, I watched that project go from early exploration through through development and then uh, construction and tech of course took that over it was pretty meaningful for me just uh, just starting out that and so I never uh, you know through my career I just 
I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's by design or I just never really, you know, being in the limelight and being front and center was never uh, a big a big issue for me. It was it was more of being part of the team and uh, in a supporting role and trying to help people as much as I could that I, you know, respected and partnered with over the years. So I uh, I don't know. It ended up maybe looks like maybe it was by design, but not not really. I just. <laughs> Just what and, happened, well, it, I guess. It, and it worked out pretty well. So you probably had no reason to change it over the course of the years. Now, what about the, what about the business plan at Haywood? Was there changes there? So when you come in in 1986 with your partners and you acquire this, maybe take us through what you believed you were acquiring, what you saw as a business opportunity and then what it is today. Was it, is it much different than how you imagined it at that time? What was that evolution like for you? You know, we we worked for other firms, and uh, you know, we we got experience by doing that by working for other companies, and and then uh, we all got together. We knew each other, so John Tignetti, myself, David Shepard, uh, and uh, Rob Rob came in uh, to, to work on the operations. Uh, George Bealey was who we bought Haywood from was stayed as a small shareholder, and uh, we just decided. Oh, John uh, John Tignetti phoned me one day, and he said do you want to start a new brokerage firm? And I said, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to David Shepard. He was my partner at the time. I said, you know what? Yeah, we would be interested in doing that. And um, I said, well, what about Haywood? And he said, well, no, you know, I don't think we should buy And He was working at Haywood as a trader at, at the time. And uh, said, well, what about Haywood? It's already up and running. And, and David and I had previously opened an office for a meeting company and gone through the regular regulatory process. And we knew how much paperwork that was. And, and then Walmart Stodgill bought Mead. We ended up at Walmart Stodgill and and, um, got, and John got in touch with us. And I said, you know what, let's talk to Haywood because they're already registered. They've got a, it might be a small firm, but it's, it's, it's a place to start, right? So that's how we ended up talking to George Bealey. And George said, yeah, he said, I'd be happy to, to sell the firm. and. Uh, and we said, well, look, we don't want to pay any. You take your money out, we'll put ours in and, and so forth. And, uh, and so that's how we, you know, kind of bought Haywood and, and started. And uh, we had a vision starting out that we wanted to uh, build a strong retail base of uh, clients and institutional clients, uh, research, uh, and for the mining sector. Because we were, we were all investors in the mining sector, and, and I was totally committed to I mean, I was very passionate about the mining sector at that time. David, did Haywood at that time, did it already have a reputation in the mining sector or was it no. just kind of neutral? No, they didn't. No, no. They were a small firm. They had a small retail base of clients. Uh, it was more of a service company. They service clients. So they didn't, it wasn't a firm that generated ideas or, or, or did, did, uh, did banking or finance. Okay. And so we had to really build that right from, from the start, right? And so we we started first with a retail, uh, building the retail base. Uh, and then into the 90s, we started building our research. Um, the banks uh, during the 90s were closing down a lot of their uh, mining teams. And so there was some very good analysts that came available. So we, we strengthened our research team. Uh, we added uh, banking to that. And we always had a very strong retail base of clients. So it was, uh, it was really our foundation. Institutional business is, uh, we, uh, we set up an institutional desk in, uh, in 98, uh, formalized institutional desk anyway. And David Lyle uh, 
led that team and we came over from first marathon. So that was uh, that kind of added uh, added something to our the dimension that we had and allowed us to do bigger deals and and access you know larger institutional capital. Was part of it bringing in foreign capital that maybe didn't have exposure or were aware of the junior mining yeah, opportunity so, in Canada? So going back just before uh, Haywood, uh, a company called Meaden Company that, that we uh, set up in Vancouver, we had a London office and uh, we had a partner in London. And at that time, so this would be in the late 70s, early 80s, we were accessing institutional funds out of London and Europe to and i think that's some of the first money that ever came into the you know vancouver stock exchange or canadian exploration um and it was there were big institutions i mean the likes of warburgs and and they they had some punt money you know that they wanted to they they were willing to take the risk on on exploration so you know we were one of the first people that that started bringing that bringing that capital into into Canada through um, our partner in London, Robin Andrews and Harry Dobson worked with uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, Robin in uh, in London at the time. So you know they were they would service all service all the institutions there. Anyway, we started doing financings in Canada with that with that capital, and that sort of got us interested in in accessing more capital out of Europe. And uh, then when we formed Haywood, we kind of was it was kind of a transition into that. Uh, we just we had all those contacts. John Tagnetti had some good contacts in uh, in Europe as well, and so uh, as, as a combination, we kind of grew. Uh, we grew that just on a it was more on a deal by deal basis, mm-hmm. and then in uh, in the late '90s, we had a we set up a formalized institutional desk, right where you know they covered covered all the accounts. But in the early days, it was you know kind of on a deal by deal basis. We would phone some of the chaps and see if they wanted to invest alongside us and. Well, you uh, must have had some early successes to be able to grow it to the point where you had an institutional desk over in London. Yeah, well, you, yeah, you have some successes, but you have some things that don't work too. So, <laughs> that, that yeah, let's go with it. Yeah, wait. It, it's interesting because now the the London circuit is such a vital one uh, for the junior marketing circuit. It's hard to imagine that wasn't all that long ago, but as recently as the late '80s, early '90s. That wasn't really the case. So what was the investment discipline in Europe at the time? Was it just for producers only? And there wasn't that, that junior knowledge? Well, there were so, there were so few of them that were investing, right, uh, in, in the space that, you know, they, they'd invest in, in uh, I mean, the, the funds that we were talking to anyway, they, they wanted to invest in the early stage, you know, high return, high risk. And so they'd take a very small percentage of their capital and do that and so and so it was more, a lot of it was in, it was in exploration uh, initially almost like a venture capitalist model but before vc became the big thing in the tech space yeah, yeah try to hit exactly. that home run yeah. yeah um i'm gonna mention i've mentioned uh you know well north of 400 uh names that you've been a, a key supporter of a, a key financier in. i'm gonna mention yeah. a few for our for our listeners alamos gold Bima, which now became B2, Midas Gold, Ventana, a huge story a few years back, Reservoir, the massive copper in Serbia that was sold to a Freeport. Uh, that's just to name a few. You've, uh, you may not have, uh, those, those companies may not have been known without, without your early support. So given yeah. that kind of track record, 
how are you able to identify companies that really have that real potential to separate the wheat from the chaff, as they say? Do you have any rules of thumb that have kind of steered you well in identifying uh, the best management teams and the best assets? Well, you know what? I, it, it, to me, it boils down to people. And I've always been focused on backing intelligent science. And so I've always wanted to partner with the geoscientists that that have uh, strong technical skills. They've, they've spent a lot of time in their, their career in the field, uh, a lot of good mapping experience. They've uh, worked in different geological environments and have a passion for discovery. And they're very unique individuals. There are not that many of them. And uh, that's, you know, basically what I've been, uh, what I focused on is, is the people is a, is a very, very uh, strong suit because people, you know, good geoscientists, they'll find good projects, mm-hmm. right? And they'll then and they'll be in the right geological environment, you know, that can host projects with scale. And so I, uh, I've always tried to do that. And that's been a, you know, I'm not a, I don't have a technical background, so I, uh, having that strong science was really, uh, was really what I, what I, uh, what I needed. It's when you when you put it that way, it makes so much sense. If you can identify the right people, then almost de facto, you're kind of getting the right jurisdictions. You're getting the right technology to help them because they're the right people, right? They're gonna, <laughs> they're not gonna go to the bad jurisdictions. Is that sort of the investment philosophy that's that's guiding this? Yeah, exactly. By having the strong science, you're gonna you're gonna manage that exploration risk to a certain point. Uh, that's one of the ways of I think you know people can. Uh, you know, have a better chance of uh, having having discovery, or and uh, but there's other ways of managing that risk too. Is is using other people's money on on some of, on some of the excavation, like bigger mining companies, and but you still have to have the the science to be able to generate the ideas, to be able to uh, acquire the land positions because you want to you want to acquire them by staking. You don't want to acquire them from third parties because you lose a lot of leverage that way. And then you want to be able to work them up into a to a that you can see that there could be a scale a system of scale there, and uh, and by doing that you can create a competitive environment with the major companies, the bigger companies, to come in as a partner. And you can from that you can get a better deal when you when you're negotiating the terms. It all follows along from that. And I would imagine part of identifying the right teams is also having them want to work with you. And and on that front. You have developed a reputation, I know, from talking to people in the industry. Because you would—you normally don't say this. You have to find out from people that have worked for you with you. Um, you go way beyond what would be considered normal levels of support for for the management teams that you believe in. Uh, there's one yeah. story I've heard of you flying down on a moment's notice down to Peru because an executive down there got got injured, was seriously injured, and you flew down there and stayed bedside for the week to make sure he was all right, which he was, thankfully. Um, financiers normally don't drop everything to do something like that. What, what do you think, where does that come from? What motivates you to go that far beyond that extra mile? Well, you know, they were my partners and, uh, and I, uh, I just felt compelled to get down there and see what I, what I could do to help. It was a horrible situation that happened to them. And, and um, one was a Canadian, one was a Peruvian. And uh, so I, when I, when I heard about it, they had been doing some uh, reconnaissance work in a certain area and, and they had an altercation. And anyways, we had to get them back up to Lima because they were in an area that didn't really have the hospital facilities. And so there was a, a little bit of work and, and trying to get, you know, a plane in to get them out and, and get them back to Lima. And 
And so it was a bit of a process, but, uh, and then I was, in the meantime, I was flying down there to, to see them just to make sure they were okay and make sure, you know, if they needed any extra help or make sure they're in the right hospital, they're getting proper care. And, you know, I, I felt compelled to do that because they were, they were my partners. And, it was, and all, uh, they got over it, as you say, they got over it and they got better, which is great. We were delighted with that, but I think that altercation still, still haunts them a little bit. You know, they, they still think about it for sure. Was I mean, Peru back in the day, there's a whole shining path thing. Was there not? Was it that? Was it? Yeah, was this, it was, this was, uh, this, this was after that. This was after that. This was about uh, five years ago. Uh, but but going back to the you know nineties uh, in the nineties in the era and early two thousand the shining path were you know they were uh, we were working in an area in northern northern Peru at the time on some VMS deposits that we discovered and uh, uh, they were pretty they were predominant in that area you just had to, we had to be very very careful we didn't have any altercations luckily but that was an issue. And listen, it's not an easy game that, that our industry uh, presents with us. It's it's amazing that we end up in these far-flung, beautiful places and we can meet local communities we would never come into contact with, but there is always that risk of danger. I think what's it's extraordinary is not everyone, often financiers are, you know, comfortable behind their desk in Vancouver or Toronto or London and uh, aren't willing to hop on a plane and get down there, but that speaks to a, a certain uh, mentality and ethos uh, that you have. I also wanted to come back and, you know, exploring who Dave Elliott is uh, as a person. I, I mentioned it off the top, your passion for, for fly fishing, your big supporter and past chair of the Pacific Salmon Foundation. Um, but what is it about the sport that really ignited this passion in you? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is it something, do you do your best thinking when you're out there? What, what's the great appeal? My dad originally got me into fly fishing when I was just a young, young chap. And, and I can remember crawling through the bush with him to get to this little stream, this little creek that had brook trout in it and, and sticking the rod over the, over the edge, trying to catch a little brook trout anyway. But, you know, it's kind of just stuck with me and I always saw always something I, I liked doing. And, and then when our children, you know, they were four or five, five, six years of age, uh, I introduced them to it into into fly fishing and, and uh, they've continued on with it. Um, it's just, I don't know. Being out in the river all by yourself and uh, wading in the river and casting, and you know, always the, the big fish is always going to be the next cast. Right. <laughs> you know, you kind of uh, you got to make fifty casts to catch one, but you, <laughs> but you, it's always the next cast. You have to um, be an eternal optimist. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, you know, you're in the wilderness and beautiful country, British Columbia. We're we're so lucky the the country that we have here. It's just it's so pretty up there. You got the mountains. You got uh, beautiful river valleys, and they're they're not populated at all. So they're they're very unpopulated. So so every day in the river is good for the soil. You know, it, and you just I don't know I don't know how to explain it. I just uh, I fished every day for three weeks this year, and uh, everybody said, "Well, how can you do that?" I said, <laughs> "I said I could have kept fishing. I could have stayed there. <laughs> I, you know, I don't have to days, get home. You might not just come back." Yeah, and so I. Anyway, so that's my favorite thing to do is river fishing, fly fishing in, in the rivers. Um, I have done some salmon fishing in the past. I'm on the board of the Pacific Salmon Foundation Endowment Fund. So it's a fund that, uh, that uh, supplements uh, uh, funds to the Pacific Salmon Foundation. And they do a lot of good work in, in British Columbia on habitat. 
and uh, we built a fish uh, fish hatchery recently in the last three years up in uh, Rivers Inlet, which was uh, is turning out to be a real success story. They've probably done 2,300 ha different habitat projects since inception. And so the endowment fund, the income from the endowment fund uh, uh, pays their administrative costs. So any, any donations that the Salmon Foundation gets goes it goes to 98% of it goes into habitat and, and programs. So, so it, I, you know, I spent seven years, seven or eight years, I guess, uh, volunteering for that. I, I also support the um, Fraser River Sturgeon uh, Conservation Society. And uh, that was originally set up by Rick Hansen, a good friend of mine. And, and um, he asked me to come and get, and get involved and help support that. And, and so my son and I have been I've been doing that, uh, supporting that for a while. Excellent. Rick Hansen, the famous uh, wheelchair athlete. Yeah, yeah, he's quite a he's quite a chap, boy. I'll tell you. I mean, if somebody should plug. be in, somebody should be in a Hall of Fame in Canada. That's, uh, <laughs> he's a he's the man, boy. I'll tell you. He's yeah, I, I love him. He's just a great great human being. Excellent. But, uh, and so you know, fishing's always been part of my. I've seen and probably. Just about all of British Columbia, from going fishing and hunting uh, years ago, uh, that I probably wouldn't have seen mm. by uh, by not being in the outdoors. And between exploration projects around the world and fishing and hunting in BC, yes, you've seen a lot of remote areas that the average citizen can only can only dream of. David, from the from the remote streams of northern BC to the streets of Philadelphia. I've intentionally been avoiding the U.S. election all day. I think we all need a bit of a break, but I do want to get your perspective, having been an investor for so much, uh, for such a long and prestigious career, the current state of the world. So, I mean, we don't have to dive directly into US elections, um, but it is part of the mix right now between COVID. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty to state the obvious, a lot of volatility in the market. Uh, have you, give us your historical perspective. Have you ever seen times in your career as challenging as this to invest in? And how are you approaching this? No, I mean I, this is a this is a new area where, where you have a, a pandemic that can create so much so much havoc and as contagious as it is, and uh, affected so many different economies uh, in different ways. And uh, so it's this is different times. Uh, I mean the U.S. election, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I what's amazing to me is there's 350 million people there, and and the two best candidates that they can put forward are. <laughs> or what they put for so great <laughs> you know what and i and you know i'm in canada of course we got you know similar issues but i'm not a big political person so i uh i kind of stay away from the from the politics but uh you know you've had uh different issues over the years where markets have had big you know volatility and uh, you had we had the financial crisis uh, back in 0809 um, we had, you know, back in 87, they had uh, markets, uh, you know, uh, corrected badly and you know, a different time. But, you know, th these all create opportunities. The world's not going to go away and die, right? It's these market corrections, they, they create opportunities of, and, and valuations that uh, you, you don't normally see. You only see them occasionally, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I think it, it, but it's hard. It's difficult to have the stomach to go in and and buy when you have these situations. And you know, back in way uh, when you had the financial institutions that were closing their doors and governments coming in to bail them out. But what what you have to realize is that 
the governments aren't going to bail them out. It's not, it's not like it's, there's not going to be no tomorrow. Right. And so, but it's still difficult to, you know, people get, uh, you know, it's fear and greed, right. And people get scared and, you know, it was upsetting even for me in the, you know, 809, but I, you know, I did, uh, uh, you know, I did buy a few things and, um, in 09, we set up Midas Gold, right. We, we consolidated, uh, uh, that land position in, in Idaho in 2009, and God, it was really difficult to raise any money. Nobody wanted to give us any money. And, uh, you know, so most of the money we put in ourselves and a few close friends. I think you got to look at look at, uh, uh, the opportunistic and look to the future, not not look to the date or tomorrow. you got to look to the future, and it's uh, it's difficult. And uh, today, I mean, China uh, seems to starting to, to grow. You've got uh, European or, you know, their, their economy is difficult. Uh, the U.S. is, you know, depending on which, who you want to believe, you know, they've, uh, they're looking maybe a little bit better than they, than they, than they were. But the, the pandemic and virus, there, there will be a vaccine. Whether this the Pfizer's one is, I don't know, it's people got to decide whether they want to take the vaccine. If it's been rushed and, you know, they're trying to rush it here, rush it there, you know, Maybe you want to wait and just see to see how that vaccine turns out. But you know there will be a vaccine, and uh, we will get back to the norm one day. But you know the world's taken on a lot of debt in a very short period of time, and uh, it's hurt a lot of people. Uh, you know a lot of small businesses and medium-sized businesses. I'm sure there's a lot of them that aren't going to make it. You know they've been surviving on, on government subsidies, and you know that's probably going to end at some point. But they just may not have the staying power, which is really unfortunate because they're everyday people that we all know that, you know, have uh, had a dream about having their own business and, and they build their, get their business built up. And then, you know, six months later, it goes by and there's something that they, they run the risk of losing it. Not very it's unprecedented and, and it's tough to see. I'm sure we all know people in our network that have, that have felt the brunt of this more than others. And it, but it does point to your point about rising debt levels. It's hard to see any other way out of this other than continued spending. Already governments are spending yeah. at rates we've never, never seen before which I think is very clear what the implications are for that on fiat currencies when you're printing that much of it, what happens to the value. Uh, bringing the, this conversation back into the gold sector, you know, if all this does portend well for a uh, reserve currency like, uh, like gold, but you layer on the pandemic that we've just been speaking about, so we're not seeing the regular kind of M&A activity we might see without a pandemic. How do you see this playing out? Are we gonna see, once we get through to the vaccine, are we just going to see a deluge of M&A activity? Do you think we'll go back to those days of 2000 and up until 2012 when it was a, a choir at any cost? How, how do you see the, the M&A space shaking out in the next, say, six to 12 month period? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the companies that were active in the M&A space in the last, last cycle, I mean, they, they just finished kind of cleaning up their balance sheets and licking their wounds from that. And, uh, yep. You know, I think it's going to be a while before they, you know, we've seen a couple of Rangold, Barrick and Newmont, you know, which probably made some economic sense. But I, you know, we're not seeing, I, I, we're not seeing a lot of uh, M&A activity. And, and I um, talked to one of our bankers the other day just to try and get a better pulse on that. And, and he said, you know what, we're not, uh, we're not seeing a lot of activity. Companies that can raise capital, they can raise equity capital right now. And, uh, and so they're not so motivated the management's not so motivated to uh, to merge their companies or end up losing their company 
when they can, uh, you know, raise equity capital, they can get their, make sure their salaries are paid. And, and uh, so they're a lot more difficult to deal with. And then you've got valuations going up and down, up and the valuations are all over the place. So it's, it's in that environment, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, have a lot of m activity, I think. Mm-hmm. It, will it come? Uh, you know, it, I think, I think there will be some, I, but there's been so much lack, there's still been such a lack of exploration funding over the last 10 years and new discoveries made that there are not a lot of good projects out there. And um, I know we've got a company in Nevada that's producing and we've been looking to make it bigger and add to it. And we've been looking at, we've looked at a lot of stuff over the last two years. We haven't found anything that that interests us for the size we are. Right. And so uh, I, I think that's a problem. There's not a lot of really, really good. There's some recycled projects that, that haven't worked two or three times out there. But so I think it's gonna be a while before we see, even if you saw something today uh, that, you, that you liked, uh, you, you know, you, you gotta do the due diligence, you gotta the site visit. Most, a lot of times the data's at site, the core, you know, you, you just to, you have to wait till this travel restrictions and pandemic is over before you could even start doing the due diligence. Let's push down on that exploration piece because it'd be fascinating to get your perspective on that we don't seem to be seeing these massive scale discoveries that we'd seen in the past. What do you think that that is a function of, is it just a function of a lack of investment dollars flowing into it? Is it more, you know, there's the Ian Telfer camp that the big stuff is just gone. It's just been discovered. How do you feel about that? Are we going to see some big discoveries if, if hot money comes back into the sector? Well, I think it's a, it's, a, you know, there's a couple there's a few reasons. That's that thing. One of them, lack of capital. I mean, there's been a, you know, just uh, pennies thrown at something over the last 10 years that you needed millions of dollars thrown at and uh, to make discoveries. I think the easy discoveries, uh, the easy near, a lot of the easy near surface ones have been, you know, been made. I think the, 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 the opportunity now is, is uh, covered deposits that are maybe deeper. And uh, I think there, you can find some of an opportunity of finding, uh, you know, sizable deposits are hard, harder to find though, when they're covered like that. But I, um, you know, I think there's still deposits. I mean, there's still exploration opportunities to find deposits with scale. You just have to have the, the right science with the capital uh, to try and find these deposits. And, uh, and, and it's got to be a, on a steady five-year plan or, or whatever number of years, right? Where it's not like you start up and you do a little bit of exploration. Oh, gee, we can't raise more capital. So now we got to wait and go back or our budget gets cut and we can't. So it's got to be just that steady flow of capital that'll allow people the good, the good science to, to, uh, to get out and find deposits. So they, I, I believe they will find them. The, the exploration timeline doesn't uh, coincide well with the cyclical nature of hot money flowing in and out of the sector. That's, that's, that is a problem. What does either the science or your gut tell you is going to be the next region that is the most prospective, that, that has a higher probability of maybe making one of these big finds that currently could be covered? Is there a certain part of the world that your spidey senses kind of tingle that you maybe keep an extra eye on for when opportunities come across your desk? Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different jurisdictions that are geologically endowed. Um, but are they jurisdictions that you can, uh, that you can uh, get a social license permit and build a mine? 
right? And so, I mean, I think I would narrow that down to say, okay, what jurisdictions would, would do you think that can deliver uh, scalable deposits that you can build, you can actually get permitted and build a mine at? And, uh, and I think they're fewer and fewer, and f they're getting, the, the world is shrinking where you'd, you want to put your investment dollars. And uh, I think North America, Canada, you know, is a, is a, is a, is a good place. I think Australia, um, you know, it's got the geology and it's got the, uh, you can build a mine. Uh, there's a few places in South America that can, can de de deliver, uh, I think Colombia is, a, is an interesting, interesting geological setting where you have these deep seated intersection zones that can create, uh, you know, sizable deposits, Peru, uh, Africa, you get you get different country risks when you're going to these different jurisdictions, and it's just how how much risk you want to take. And you got there's so much risk in exploration, and you've got political risk. You've got you know, so it's it's the, I think the world's shrunk down where uh, people are uh, people are going to want to put their exploration dollars and going forward. But you're you're not closed off to certain areas in South America. That's interesting with Colombia. No. We actually had Serafino Iacono of Grand Colombia cold on earlier today. Um, no. speaking to that. There are people, he seems to get it done, right? There are these, also these individuals, back to your point about people that seem to be able to go, Lucas Lundin jumps to mind, even uh, yeah. Clyde Johnson, who I know you're a big supporter of Bima, they seem to be able to get it done. What, uh, what, what are those attributes? You've, you've seen these people operate uh, over time. What is it that allows certain CEOs or certain management teams to be able to get corporate social or social license in areas that sometimes other companies cannot? I think it's very, very simplistic. I think they they go into an area. They uh, they go in as a you know as a guest you know to the countries. Uh, I think they uh, they network very well within the country and 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 find people to partner with within that country that'll help them with the help them with the social and political uh, lobbying and uh, you know you treat uh, the local people with respect. You, you help them in certain in instances. They all. A lot of times in these small communities, they need help. Um, so you help them, you try and educate them a bit, um, give them some jobs. You know, you, you become a partner of theirs rather than the other way, right? And uh, I think, I think by doing that, you, uh, uh, you you can develop a good relationship and, and and get a social license. And but you can't just go in there with your elbows up and you know I'm a big mining company, I'm going to do it my way, and you know which is happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, small companies and big companies, they, they get offside with the local communities. and But there's there, there's a better way to do that. You just go in and help them, partner with them, make them a partner. You know, it feels like just, once you once you get offside, it's very hard to get back onside. So that initial yeah. mindset that you bring to it. No, for sure. So vital. No, I know I've been in Peru for, I don't know, probably 25, 30 years. And I, you know what? We've had some issues in the past, and we've learned from those those issues and some mistakes that we had made uh, early on that uh, but I, I think it's a it's a great country to great country to invest I like the Peruvian people you know they're really, really nice people and uh, um, yeah so it's some incredible projects down there and some the operators that get it right uh, can really get it right in Peru uh, that's for sure yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, the time has flown by. We're already at the end of the, the we're coming up okay. upon three o'clock. I would love to get your perspective. You speak a lot with, uh, with investors from all different kinds of disciplines. What is that perception around mining? We're hearing so, and of course, ESG is the, is the big the buzz three letters of the day. Um, 
where maybe even we want to break this question out into those three letters, environmental, social governance. Is one of those three letters, uh, does the industry as a whole need to do better on one of those three letters to attract the type of investment capital that it needs to sustain its exploration and its growth uh, as these commodities really par- fully partake in the, the, what looks like a strong run in commodity prices? I think companies, the money companies are doing a lot better job on the social and economic, especially Canadian companies. I mean, I think they're, I think they're, um, they've got a good reputation globally for, you know, for the environment, but also on a, on a social basis. So I think, uh, you know, I think the companies are really, they're trying to do a better job in those areas. I think, you know, there's always room for improvement, but I think there's a, I think there's a dedicated shift, you know, with, uh, companies in our sector that are uh, trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in investment capital, I think, I think in the investment capital side, you've got to show them returns. I think it's, uh, they got to be seen or see where they can get a return on capital. And, and uh, it's like the big general funds. You, we need to get some of that money coming back into the resource funds. And, you know, they're looking around and, you know, they haven't, uh, you know, come in in any big way at all. And, uh, you know, that kind of needs to, that needs to happen. And that capital, you know, I mean, if you look at the senior companies, you need leadership in the sector. And I think, you know, in the, in the, especially in the gold sector, I think the, the, the big companies, you know, have showed, showed some leadership. They've cleaned up their balance sheets. They've, uh, they've got their costs down. Uh, they're starting to show, you know, from the price of gold, they're starting to show good profits. They're starting to give some of it back to their shareholders. Uh, they've had reasonable performance in, in the marketplace. So, you know, people, you're looking at that and everybody is still underweighted in the sector on a global basis. They're, they're going to get forced to come to the sector because they need to, you need to show the returns. I think, I think the money will come. It's just, uh, they gotta, when it does, there'll be too much of it. <laughs> well, that's the problem. You know, yeah. You've, like you said to me uh, a week or so ago, you got so few dollars at the bottom and so, so much money at the top, right? It's kind of, and it's, but it's a small sector. You look at the capitalization of our sector, and then you look at a couple of tech companies, and <laughs> you see, you realize just how small our sector is. So, you know, um, a significant amount of money coming into that sector has a meaningful result. Yeah. David, again, congratulations on your induction into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame next year in 2021. So very well deserved. Thank you for spending the time with myself and our viewers and giving us a window into how you've become such a successful businessman over the years. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate you, you having me on and I appreciate your support on the, on the nomination. And, uh, you know, I'm very, right from the deep bottom of my heart. I thank you very much. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again for another episode, another season, another year. I hope you enjoyed our year in review. Hope you enjoyed the interview. We have lots lined up in the new year. Maybe next time we'll try a little outlook. Not sure how we'll do there. Cross that bridge when we get to it. Until then, I hope you're enjoying a fantastic holiday. Hope you have a wonderful New Year's. And we'll see you next week. Until then, take care.